All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23. And in context, this section is continuing the conversation at the end of chapter 2. That conversation actually began in chapter 2, verse 6, with Paul saying that even though the message of Jesus is foolishness to the world, to people who are mature, to Christians, followers of Jesus who are mature, it's wisdom. And so Paul says that he speaks wisdom to mature people. And what he said at the end of chapter 2 is that mature people, they are the spiritual people. We clarify there that spiritual people means those who live according to the Spirit, who walk by the Spirit and thus produce the Spirit's character, the Spirit's fruit in their life. To those kinds of people, Paul explains spiritual things. To natural people, uh, the things of God's Spirit, well, those things are foolishness to natural people. But to spiritual people, Paul actually speaks spiritual things. So the person who lives by the Spirit grasps what Paul is teaching. He recognizes it as wisdom. She recognizes it as wisdom. He or she sees how the cross is the wisdom of God. Well, that conversation from chapter 2 continues here in chapter 3 with Paul highlighting the problem with the Corinthian Christians. They aren't spiritual people. They're fleshly. They aren't mature. They're babies. And that's why they don't really get what Paul is saying. That's why there's quarreling and divisions among them. That's why they're pitting leaders, you know, against each other, Apollos versus Paul and some of that. Um, And thus, some of them are turning against Paul himself. It has to do with the fact that even though they think they're spiritual, even though they might claim to be mature, they really aren't. And that's causing a bunch of their problems. And so Paul says here, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, and I, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as to infants in Christ. Recall back in chapter 2, verse 13, where we said that the best translation of that, uh, that verse, even though it's not always the most common translation, it's the best translation in the whole context and in view of how Paul uses this word spiritual in the book of 1 Corinthians, we said there that the best translation is that Paul and his team explain spiritual things to spiritual people. Spiritual people there in 2.13 is the same word that's translated spiritual people here in 3.1. I just wish they would be consistent in their translation because it would help us track and trace Paul's flow of thought a little better. So spiritual people is the same word uh, there as here. And this is the application of what Paul has been saying about his ministry and wisdom. The Corinthians have a problem, and Paul is applying it directly to them. Here's why they're struggling. They aren't spiritual people. That is, they aren't living by the Spirit. They aren't mature people. They're still infants or babies in Christ. So Paul has to treat them like that. He has to treat them as babies and give them baby food. And so verse 2, he says... I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to consume it. You're not ready for solid food. You need milk because you're still little tiny babies. And then he says, and even now, you're not able. Like, when I was there with you, I gave you baby food because you were brand new. And here we are now several years later, and guess what? 
you're still not able to consume it. You still need milk because you, and then he explains what he means by them being babies, verse 3, for you're still fleshly. This is the problem. In contrast to being spiritual people, that is, in contrast to people who live and walk by the Spirit, you're fleshly. That is, you live and walk according to the flesh, uh, according to the values and the ambitions and the resources and the ideas and wisdom of the, the fallen fleshly world and culture around you. That's what it means to be fleshly. And that's why Paul has to deal with them the, the way he is, is because they're fleshly. Uh, they're living according to the flesh. Paul then explains what being fleshly looks like for them in the rest of verse 3. He says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like ordinary people? Jealousy and strife are deeds of the flesh. They're indicators that you're, you're living according to the resources and values and wisdom of the flesh. Jealousy and strife. And when he says... Uh, are you not walking like ordinary people? Literally, he says, are you not walking like humans, like mere men? In other words, you're living in a merely human way of acting and living. You're not living according to God's wisdom, God's resources, and the culture and values of God's kingdom. You're living purely like the rest of the Corinthians, the rest of the culture around you. Then he gives a specific example of what he's thinking of in their context. And it comes back to where he started this whole conversation. Look at verse 4. He says, For when one person says, I'm of Paul, and another says, oh, I'm of Apollos, aren't you just ordinary people? Aren't you just living like mere people, bickering about which leader you're going to support and you're going to identify with? And in doing so, he comes back to where this entire large first section of 1 Corinthians began in chapter 1, verse 10. As the new family of God in Christ... Christians are to operate differently. We're not supposed to operate according to merely human values, but we have different values, different aims and ambitions, different practices, not merely human ones. We operate according to the Spirit, His aims, His values, and His character. And as noted here, jealousy, rivalry, strife, arguing about status and honor and whatever, that's just a merely human way of acting. Now, having come back to the topic that began this whole first large essay in 1 Corinthians, this rivalry over various leaders, Apollos and Paul, having come back to that here in verse 4, what Paul does beginning in verse 5, all the way down through chapter 4, verse 5, is talk about himself and Apollos and their ministry to show the Corinthians how he wants them to think and act and work together. He offers a new perspective, a spirit perspective, a spiritual perspective on ministry and Christian leadership so that they'll quit arguing over who's better and they'll quit dividing the church along those lines of who's better and which leader do we support and all of that. Paul actually tells us in chapter 4 verse 6 that that's what he's been doing. So from here in 3-5 all the way down to 4-5, that's what he's doing. In fact, here's what he says in 4.6. He says, Now these things, brothers and sisters, I have figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos on your account, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. So, here he begins in chapter 3, verse 5, to talk about Apollos and himself to show the Corinthian Christians how he wants them to think and act and work together. 
And so he says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? And what then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. In other words, Paul and Apollos are nothing more than servants used by the Lord. That's how they think of themselves. That's how you should think of Paul and Apollos. That's how you should think of yourselves, O Corinthians. That they are just servants used by the Lord uh, for his purposes. And they each played, Paul and Apollos, each played a different and important role in the ministry and in the Corinthians' faith. But God is the one who is really important, and his role is the one that really matters. So look what he says in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. That's their role. Paul first showed up. He planted the seeds. He grew the initial heart, the initial fruit. Paulus came along. He cultivated and nurtured and watered that. But neither Paul nor Apollos could actually make something grow. They're not responsible for the outcomes. That's God's work. He's the one who caused the growth. So his role and his power is what really matters. And so get your thinking right. This is the force of this. Get your thinking right about... Paul, Apollos, and yourselves, that really it's God that matters. And so he says in verse 7, So then, here's the conclusion, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. It's God's role that really matters in Christian ministry, in Christian service, in Christian leadership. It's God's work. He's the one that can actually cause the growth. The one who plants, the one who waters, they are mere servants doing God's work at God's time. God's the one who bears good fruit from it. Now, he continues the metaphor in verse 8, drawing out another important point. Look what he says in verse 8. Now, the one who plants and the one who waters are one. Paul planted, Apollos watered, and the one who plants and the one who waters, they're one. One in what way? Well, it could be one in kind, that is one in task, working in God's field. Could be that, that they have one task. But probably Paul is focusing on one in rank or one in status. They're both servants. That's how he said he wants them to think of them in chapter 3, verse 1. And he's actually going to restate that in chapter 4, verse 1. And so I think that's what he's focusing on. They're, they're one in status. They're one in rank. God's the one who causes the growth. The one who plants, the one who waters, Paul and Apollos, they're simply servants of God. And so the Corinthians, well, their allegiance should be to God, not to Paul or not to Apollos. They simply are servants of the one who really matters, that is God himself. And it's God who determines the relative quality of each person's work, not the Corinthians who are arguing about who's better. Like in the long run, the, the Corinthians assessment and valuation really doesn't matter. What really matters is God and God's assessment and God's evaluation. So he goes on and says in the second half of verse eight, but each one, so the one who plants, the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So each one is going to be evaluated and rewarded um, for his own work. And who does the evaluating and the rewarding? Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so the implication is God's the one who is going to uh, conduct the quality control inspection. He's the one who's going to hand out the rewards because we're God's fellow workers and you're God's field. 
You're God's building. And so the Corinthians need to think clearly about who they belong to and who Paul and Apollos belong to and really who all other Christian leaders belong to. They all, leaders and members alike, they all belong to God. Like Paul and Apollos, they're God's fellow workers. The Corinthians, they're God's field. Everybody belongs to God. And in the ancient world, status and honor were largely determined by who you belong to. And so that's, there would be a lot of vying over, you know, who your patron was or who you were a client of and all of that. Because your status and your honor could be elevated if you had a, a patron that was somebody greater than somebody else. And so who do you belong to? Well, the fact is, is they all belong to God. So their status and honor is all incredibly high and they all work on his behalf. Now, notice how at the end of verse 9, Paul changes the metaphor. You are God's field, God's building. Uh, the imagery of planting and growing now gives way to the imagery of a building. And Paul doesn't have just any building in mind. It becomes clear by verses 16 and 17 that the building he has in mind is God's building, that is, the temple. So in what follows, Paul continues the discussion, now using the imagery of the building, that is, the temple. So look at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each person must be careful how he builds on it. Don't miss that Paul is initially, primarily, talking about his ministry. Uh, I laid a foundation, he says. Now another is building on it, but each person must be careful how he builds on it. So initially, he's talking about his ministry. But in what follows, he's going to broaden out what he's talking about to the principle of Christian ministry in general, with other people building on the foundation that Paul laid. So Paul comes to Corinth. He lays a foundation through his ministry according to the grace of God, he says in verse 10. Like it's really only by the grace of God that Paul is in ministry. Paul talks about that in numerous places in his, in his writings, how he didn't deserve to be given this opportunity to serve God in this way because he persecuted the church and all that. So God gave him the opportunity and it's by the power of God through his grace in Paul's life that he actually is able to carry out this ministry. So based on the grace of God, Paul lays a foundation. He does it like a wise master builder, laying a good foundation. Someone else comes along now and, and is building on that foundation. Each person, whoever it is, must be careful how he builds on it. He goes on in verse 11 to explain, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the only legitimate foundation for God's building. So we're picturing this building now, right? We've moved from agriculture to building. The foundation of the building is central because it, shapes, it, it sets the shape, dimensions, and direction of the whole building, and it's what's going to help the building be solid. And the only legitimate foundation for God's building, his temple, is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation that Paul himself laid in Corinth. If someone else tries to come in and give a different foundation that's not in sync with Jesus, they're totally off base. So can't do that. Now, verse 12 says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation, so the legitimate foundation of Jesus, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident. 
these are building materials in general, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. These are the kinds of building materials that would be used in building a temple. They were the kind of building material that were used in building the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In fact, gold, silver, and precious stones are noted in the Old Testament as building material specifically for the temple in Jerusalem. And so here Paul now is taking that imagery of building this temple building and using building materials, gold, straw, hay, whatever it is, he's using building materials as kind of imagery for the quality of each person's work. And he says, that will become evident. It will become obvious. How will it become obvious? Well, continue reading. For the day, presumably meaning the day of judgment, the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. This is how each person's work will become evident. There will be a refining fire. And that's what we're talking about here is a refining fire uh, that examines and refines and purifies each person's work. How does a refining fire work? Well, it burns away impurities so that the pure gold or the pure silver or whatever else is, is all that remains. And pay attention here to the fact that what's being tested is each person's work. That's what's being tested. The fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. So here's the work of ministry uh, that's being done in God's temple there in Corinth. And whatever person is doing in the temple, right, Paul is basically saying, guess what? There's going to come a day where the work you're doing is going to be tested and evaluated. And if you're not building according to the foundation of Jesus with the kind of quality that God wants you to have according to the character of the Spirit, it's going to become obvious because the day will show it. He continues the imagery in verses 14 and 15 uh, explaining what he means. He says, if anyone's work which he has built on it, that is built on the foundation, remains, he will receive a reward. So if you built with with gold or silver or precious stones, the refining fire will remove impurities and you'll still have pure gold, pure silver. You'll have stones there for it, right? Like it's going to become obvious because they can survive the fire. But what about wood or hay or straw? Well, all that stuff burns up in fire. And so uh, notice what he says in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, well, he will suffer loss. So it notice it's again, the work that's being tested. If the work is burned up, he will suffer loss he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so there's going to be a refining fire that tests the quality of each person's work. And um, it will demonstrate whether it is lasting or not lasting. And if it's not lasting, you'll be saved, he says, but only through fire. Then he makes it explicit what kind of building he's talking about. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. A couple things to observe out of this, right? We're talking about building the temple, and, and God's temple now is God's people in Christ, full of the Spirit. And so the you here, when it says, don't you know that you are the temple of God, is plural. That means you all. It's 
And the focus here is on the church. In chapter 6, he'll use the same imagery, uh, being the temple, and it's focused more on the individual there. But here, it's on the church. And the divisions and the factions and the uh, arguing is what's motivated this whole conversation. And that's how they're threatening to destroy God's temple. They're trying to tear it down with all their rivalry and all their bickering and all their divisions. And even their bickering about leaders and and drawing into groups around certain leaders and, and thus turning against Paul as their apostle. All of that is threatening to tear down the church there in Corinth. And so he says, you all are God's temple. Uh, and the spirit of God dwells in you. Like God's spirit has come to fill his temple. And in fact, the word for temple here, there's two different words for temple that are used in the New Testament. The particular word here is neas, which refers to the sanctuary proper, the temple proper. And not just the whole temple complex, but the actual inner sanctuary of the temple where in the Jerusalem temple, it's the temple proper where in the Holy of Holies, God was supposed to return to his temple and dwell there. Well, now that has happened, not in the Jerusalem temple, but in the very people of God in Christ. So the very dwelling place of God in Corinth is the church of Jesus Christ. That's where heaven and earth are joined together. That's the kind of building that Paul is talking about. And this shows how significant that the church is. It's not a minor thing. It's not just another human organization or club or gathering. The church is the very dwelling place of the almighty, infinite God. And so this comes back to what he said at the end of verse 10. Each person must be careful how he builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Here now emphasizing that he must be sure he builds in such a way so as not to destroy God's temple. Why? Well, because if the way you build... In other words, if the work you do in the church actually tears down the church and destroys the church, tears down and destroys God's temple, it's not just your work that's going to burn up. He says here, God will destroy you. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. For the temple of God is holy. This is how serious God takes it. It's holy. It's set apart for God and for his glory and for his purposes. And that's what you are. And thus, you have to be circumspect. You have to be uh, wise in how you build. You have to make sure you're doing it in keeping with the teaching and the wisdom of Jesus by the power of the Spirit because God's temple is holy. It's uh, set apart for God. And so there's the ultimate argument for unity. They're one temple that belongs to the Almighty God. They're the very place where God's own Spirit dwells, and thus they must work hard to maintain and preserve that oneness, that unity. And Paul will emphasize that at various points throughout this letter. So now with that, Paul returns to that theme, to the damage they're causing to the church, God's very own temple, by their rivalry and boasting along the lines of human wisdom. And so he says in verse 18, Take care that no one deceives himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. In other words, notice, if you if someone is kind of puffed up, think they're so smart and so awesome um, in this age, well, they actually have to become foolish. That is, become foolish by the standards of this age, by the standards of this fallen fleshly culture in order to become truly wise. And so here you are vying for status and honor, and you're doing it according to the same the same wisdom, the same way that Corinth, the city around you, does it. 
that's not God's wisdom. And so you're going to have to have a different kind of wisdom if you want to truly be wise. Why is that? Well, because what God thinks is wise and what the world thinks is wise, they're opposite to each other. So he says in verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the sight of God. Like the things the world counts as wise, God counts as foolish. So you've got to kind of think differently if you're actually going to be wise according to God's standard. And to support this point, that the things that God thinks uh, is wise is foolishness by the world and vice versa, the things that God thinks is foolishness is the wisdom of the world, to support that, uh, Paul cites two passages of Scripture. So he says, For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise by their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are useless. These two passages show that God has a very different estimation of what's wise than the world does, and that he intends to subvert that false wisdom. The first quote here comes from Job chapter 513, where one of Job's advisors really urges Job to entrust his cause to God because God is the one who really knows what's wise and will actually catch crafty people in their craftiness. The second quote comes from Psalm 94, verse 11, and uh, Paul adjusts it for his purposes, but you can see the point here, that the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are useless. Like, when human beings who claim to be wise by the world standards, God's like, yeah, that's useless wisdom. And so Paul here is really urging uh, the Corinthians to say, don't be deceived. Don't think you're wise if you're using the wisdom of this world. That kind of wisdom is foolishness in the sight of God. And so having called them out for their immaturity and having warned them of the seriousness of their behavior and having reminded them that God's idea of wisdom is totally different, Paul now applies this directly to them and to their behavior and their situation. So he says in verse 21, So then, here's the conclusion. So then, no one should be boasting in people. This is the specific call to action for the Corinthians in their situation. Quit boasting in people. Quit. And the idea of boasting is like, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of whatever it is. Like, quit like saying, I'm attached to myself and trying to find status and rank and honor by who you're arranging yourself under and who you're attaching yourself to. Everyone is what they are by the grace of God. And so the specific call to action for them is to quit boasting in people. And why should they quit boasting in people? Well, because of everything he said up to this point, but he the way he explains it by way of summary is this. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. If you're trying to you know, find status and honor and importance by virtue of, of what you have and who you belong to, just think about it. Uh, what Paul is saying is, look at everything you have and look at who you belong to. You belong to the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. and He belongs to God. And so if you would simply recognize what you have and who you belong to, it would alleviate the pressure to compete for honor and status by boasting in people. And the word belong here doesn't fully get at what is actually being said. It's literally in Greek, just a genitive. That means it literally is just of, 
of you. So uh, all things are of you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things are of you and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And so it's more the idea that all things are connected to you and all things are for your benefit. What we're talking about is about all that God has for his people, meaning all of his people, Paul, Apollos, their fellow church member, all have to be understood together in relationship to Christ and in relationship to God. That's really important because when it says you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, we could get confused about that if we uh, press the word belong too far. It's not that Christ belongs to God as if he's God's property. It's that Christ is of God. He came from him. He's connected to him. He's part of him, right? Just as you are part of Christ. And so all of this is of you. It's for your benefit. And so how can mere worldly status matter and be argued over since this is all the case, that you have all of this and everything that God is doing is for your good and for your benefit? And so let me just end this section with a couple of reflections. The first is Christian leaders are servants. They're not above other people. They're not better than other people, but they exist to serve others. They serve others on behalf of God, on behalf of what God wants done, on behalf of God's ambitions and God's purposes and God's goals in sync with God's character, not their own. They have to do it God's way. They serve others for the sake of God. And thus they're accountable to God for their work. He's the one who will evaluate their work. He will test the quality of it and see if it remains. And so they're accountable to him for their work. So that's the first reflection. Christian leaders are servants. They serve others on behalf of God and they're accountable to God for it. The second reflection is our self-understanding and Christian ministry. As those in Christ and as the temple of God, that's who we are. Like we are those who are in Christ. We're of Christ. Uh, we are the very temple, the living God and his spirit dwells among us. Uh, we possess all things that God has for his people. Um, and thus, we're not trying to fill, you know, like fill some need or some void in ourselves. We're not trying to get ahead or prove our value or elevate our status. We belong to God and all things are for us. And man, that just, it, when we serve God and we do life and ministry out of a position of fullness, rather than out of deficiency, it takes the pressure off. And we no longer are trying to prove ourselves to other people and to make other people pay attention to us. That, I think, is one of the implications of what Paul says here, is that we, we are people who are the temple of God in Christ, who belong to God, and everything that God has for his people, we enjoy that now in Christ. And that, my friends, takes the pressure off of trying to make ourselves be something more than we actually are. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So if you're one of the people who support this ministry every month with your generous support, 
Thank you so much. This ministry literally would not exist without you. And if you've been impacted in some way by this ministry, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters? You can do so by clicking the uh, link down in the notes below or by going to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button and setting up a monthly donation right there. Or you can give a one-time donation as well. Or you can support this ministry through the study hub at listenerscommentary.com as well. God bless you. Thanks a ton for your support.